Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Wednesday, October the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio is our political editor, Pat Leahy. It is the day after a rather underwhelming budget day and we will be joined a little bit later by economist John Fitzgerald and political scientist Theresa Reedy to discuss some of the key points in Pascal Donoghue's fiscal plans for 2020. Those plans, of course, have been shaped to a great extent by the possible effects of the United Kingdom exiting the European Union without a deal. And that possibility loomed a little bit larger this week when Downing Street sources sent a memo to The Spectator magazine saying that talks on a withdrawal agreement were on the brink of collapse due to the refusal of Leo Varadkar to engage with British proposals on regulatory and customs checks on the island of Ireland. That memo also made some inflammatory statements about the consequences for European countries if Brexit was delayed, a tone reinforced by another unsourced briefing on Tuesday morning about the contents of what sounds like a pretty difficult phone call between British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and German Chancellor Angela Merkel. So where does all this leave us and does it actually change anything? We are joined on the line by James Forsyth, political editor of The Spectator. James Forsyth, there's one journalist to another. I just want to say, first of all, congratulations on a terrific scoop that uh, put many cats among many pigeons on Monday night with your uh, missive from uh, an unnamed source. I'm guessing his initials are D and C uh, inside number 10 Downing Street. Um, it was an extraordinary piece of text. Um, do you think this is part of an overall strategy by Downing Street to sort of pull a trigger uh, on the next phase uh, of, of this process? Or was it perhaps coming from one part of Downing Street? Well, I think the most striking thing to me is that the frustration with the Irish government goes right across Downing Street. This isn't um, confined to veterans of the referendum campaign. I think there is a feeling in Downing Street that they moved a long way and they moved the DUP a long way too and and that that essentially hasn't been recognised and that the Irish government hasn't engaged with their proposal. And I think there's a tension that stems from a kind of... uh, I've seen Pat's tweets on this. I think Boris Johnson has a different impression of what Leo Varadkar said to him at that meeting in Dublin last month than Leo Varadkar does. I think the, the UK government left that meeting thinking that if they moved on a all Ireland regulatory zone, there would be movement on the, the, the Irish would be prepared to think creatively about, about the other matters regarding the border. And I think that is, I think that is the kind of driving force of attention at the moment. Pat, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's interesting what, what James says there about them uh, coming away from that meeting between Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar with different impressions of each other's position. I, I'm I'm told, you know, with, with some force that this view that was expressed in the memo from Downing Street that Leo Varadkar had 
uh, indicated that he would move to some degree on the backstop, maybe on the on the customs question, if there was movement from Downing Street on the regulatory issue. Uh, I, I'm I'm told that certainly was not said by Leo uh, Leo Varadkar. Now, uh, one of the things that we were told after that meeting in briefings was that you know that at least the two leaders had established some sort of a rapport trying to interpret the body language and that between them, which is always an, an, an inexact science, to put it mildly. But that would bear it out. When Boris Johnson was leaving, he kind of turned around to Leo and he said, call me or text me or something, you know. And uh, so it certainly, that certainly seemed to be what was established be- between them in contrast to the terrible personal relationship that Leo Varadkar had with Theresa May. But obviously, if they're both coming away from the meeting with different uh, impressions, then you'd wonder about that. You'd also wonder then what will happen and if the two men meet again this week, which I think officials are trying to put together, uh, trying to put together now. But I, I think there may be also a kind of a larger point of difference between them, which is that I don't think that the Irish and EU side ever saw the likelihood of a new deal before before this summit and consequently before the 31st of October. And whatever difference there may be on the details of who agreed to do what and when, that's probably a broader difference because it seems to me that, you know, these are serious attempts by Downing Street to move the process. I do think Downing Street wants a deal. James is correct to the extent that that move made by the DUP and was borne out by what Sam McBride was saying to us last week hasn't really been accepted, not to mind reciprocated in uh, uh, in Dublin. So uh, I think there is a larger misunderstanding between them on the on the, the timing of any possible deal, which the EU sees coming afterwards and Downing Street wants to do before. Uh, not, to, not to turn us into kind of agony aunts of, of the Boris Johnson Leo Varadkar relationship. I think I think when they when Boris Johnson went to Dublin for that meeting, expectations on the UK side were were very low. Then they came back from that meeting, and it was in the in it was described as better than anyone could have expected. And I think that you know because there had been no relationship, as Pat was saying, between Leo Varadkar and Theresa May on a personal level, they kind of came back from that meeting with a, with a much more positive sense. I think one of the other issues is that Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar spent a lot of time talking one-on-one. And I think that Boris Johnson is a, is a congenital optimist. And I think he genuinely does regard this discussion about the customs stuff as, as, as technical detail in, in a way that obviously Leo Varadkar doesn't. But I, and I think that, but I think that the UK side definitely left that meeting with the impression that if they were prepared to move on an all-Ireland regulatory zone, other things would be up for discussion. And I think this is one of the things that is irritated Downing Street. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not just that the, it's not just that they feel that the Irish and the EU side haven't agreed to what they proposed. They feel that they haven't even really engaged with it at all. But is there not? I think to remember there was after that very meeting in Dublin that Boris Johnson said that a failure to reach a deal would be a, a failure of, of statecraft. And is what we're describing here not exactly that, a failure of statecraft, if people come out of the same meeting with entirely different interpretations of what happened at it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt that 
no deal would be would be a, a, a spectacular diplomatic failure, which I think would reflect very badly on, 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 on both sides or all sides in this negotiation. So I suppose then that, you know, the the next question, Pat, is does this has this moved the dial uh, two leaks, in fact, the one and the one which James got and then the the very strange readout of the phone conversation between Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel yesterday. Um, has the basic ground shifted at all? from what we expected to how things to play out? I, I don't think the ground has shifted in terms of the likelihood of a deal before the summit. But my view has always been that that was very unlikely to impossible uh, and not just because of the distance between the two parties, between the EU and the UK, but of the timescale available to uh, agree something. And I'm interested when when James says uh, that, you know, the the, the customs, the exact nature of the customs arrangements are to Boris Johnson a, a matter of detail that can be worked out, whereas it's it's that detail that has always been the very heart of the Irish concerns because one of the details may be where and when checks, if they are necessary, take place. That's a very, very important detail. In fact, for the Irish side, that's more than a detail. That is one of the principles that they won't won't compromise easily on. I I think this is... What what might have changed this week is this, which is, I, I fear we might be heading into a situation where where the only options become no Brexit or no deal, because the two sides seem to be so far apart on this customs question, which is I think you know I think Boris Johnson's red line is that the UK must leave the EU with its customs territory intact. I, I think on all the other stuff, the, the, the level playing field mechanism for Northern Ireland, the precise functioning of a consent mechanism, you know, the UK side is prepared to negotiate. I think on the idea that the UK's customs territory must remain whole, they're not. And then if you combine that with uh, the, the EU position that there must be no checks on the island of Ireland... I find it very hard to see how you how you get to a deal. Even if the you know blessed sponge of amnesia um, can wipe clean memories of the past few days on both sides, and that you know you you have a general election and then you have a, a, a new government, and you know if, if, assuming that Boris Johnson were to win that election, you had a new government and, and therefore a, a, one would presume an opening. Unless the two sides can move to a to a, to a more common position on customs. I don't see how you can get a deal at the moment. Do, do you think, James, that a general election, and it seems to me the most likely outcome is that there, there, there won't be a deal, there's going to be a few weeks of extreme turbulence, there will be a, uh, there, there was most likely to be an extension to be followed by a general election in the UK. If that is what happens, and if, as I think most of us expect, Boris Johnson wins that election, do you think his position is necessarily harder after that election? Because I think the perception, both in Dublin and in Brussels, is that after an election, Boris Johnson will be able to do what he apparently cannot do now, uh, which is no deal. But he will also be able to do a deal, which 
it's not clear that he can uh, that he can do now. So you know, I think they are the, the the view in Dublin is more likely that these proposals you know they don't particularly like them. But if all that happens and Boris Johnson returns in mid November, mid December, then they will have to deal on the basis of these proposals or negotiate on the basis, uh, at least on the basis of these proposals. But uh, do you think that he actually becomes less likely to compromise after an election? Well, I think he would fight the election on a kind of get Brexit done immediately platform. Now, now that is, I think, subtly different from a no-deal platform because you could get Brexit done immediately if the EU agreed to his proposals. And I think that will be the kind of language and position he takes in the campaign. But I also think that the dynamics of a general election mean that at the end of it, there isn't going to be much time left to get a deal. And I think it will be... And I also think that on this point on the customs territory, that I think is... I think that has now become fundamental to him. And I can't see him shifting on that question. So I think really the question is, uh, is there some way to kind of compromise or fudge on the customs question because if there isn't then I'm then I as even as a normally a fairly Panglossian person I'm becoming more skeptical about the prospects of a deal but is there an interpretation in perhaps in Downing Street or in some quarters in Downing Street at all that if Boris Johnson were to win a majority and were to come back with these proposals or something very different to them that the EU and Ireland would in good faith then be willing to negotiate them in a way that they're not now because the Ban Act requires this extension. So it's in their interest just to wait and see how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, look, Boris Johnson, <laughs> the reason Boris Johnson is so furious about the, the Ben Act is that he has always believed that, that no deal is like the kind of trident nuclear deterrent, you know, that, 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 that merely having it in your arsenal means that you never have to use it. And I think they they feel that they're, that the way... Because... They know that they are resigning from pledges or commitments that Theresa May's government made on Northern Ireland. But they've always thought that the way to persuade uh, the Irish and the EU to accept that would be to say, look, you know, you can take this that goes, you know, 70% of the way towards what you guys want and it avoids no deal and the inevitable, or the alternative is no deal with a much more dramatic hardening of the border. James, can I just ask you also as well, with your scoop, which I mentioned at the top, and also the readout of the Angela Merkel conversation, which was a, a, another off-the-record briefing to, to British journalists yesterday morning. The sort of, the, the, you know, the language used in both cases, I mean, I was particularly struck by this point about other European countries, and the quote is, those who support delay will go to the bottom of the queue. Um, supporting delay will be seen by government as hostile intervention in domestic politics. That refers to the various members of the EU27 and their posture on that. I mean, first of all, you can't negotiate with them individually because they're part of the EU27, but it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a weird thing to say. And equally, in relation to Angela Merkel, I find it very hard to believe that Angela Merkel told Boris Johnson that Germany could leave the EU whenever it, whatever it wanted, but Britain couldn't. It doesn't sound like Angela Merkel. Two points on that. First of all, I think we are in an unprecedented situation in that the Ben Act means that the kind of traditional British system where the, the executive negotiates treaties and then Parliament chooses whether to ratify them or not it, it is kind of in abeyance because you've got Parliament directly inserting itself into an international negotiation, which obviously puts the EU27 in a very 
awkward position because, you know, who speaks for Britain? Is it the British Prime Minister or is it the British Parliament that clearly has a different view from the Prime Minister? I think on the Merkel call, um, uh, obviously the, the, the readout of it given was fairly extraordinary. But I think if you, having kind of spoken to various people in Downing Street, I don't think the readout is totally inaccurate. I think the conversation basically went, went kind of slightly disastrously wrong. And I think if you actually kind of strip everything back, I don't think Angela Merkel was trying to talk about um, a German exit from the European Union. I think she was trying to make the point that the Good Friday, that, that the UK had to realise that the Good Friday Agreement complicated its position. And I think that, that I think the Merkel Boris Johnson call the uh, I, I don't I don't I think the the language is obviously um, <laughs> the language is obviously fairly undiplomatic, but I think when you strip away that language, I don't think it's a I don't think it's an inaccurate reflection of the call from certainly from how the UK side heard it, and that that and it's worth saying that I mean that's what I'm hearing from both official people inside Downing Street and political people. This this isn't just. You know, uh, this isn't a totally rogue interpretation of a call. Last thought from you, Pat? Well, I mean, I'll, ask, I'll ask James one last question. What, what do you think is going to happen next week, assuming there is no breakthrough in the coming days, which seems galactically unlikely? What do you think is it... What would Boris Johnson's demeanour at the summit next week be? And what's he likely to say to EU leaders, do you think? I think he's going to. I think he is going to say to the EU something along the lines of, "I don't want an extension. My government doesn't want an extension. There is no purpose to this extension. It will only cause more delay. It won't achieve anything, um, and I don't want you to grant it." Um, and I think he will then attempt to look like he has been dragged, kind of kicking and screaming, into this extension, and then they will hope that they finally get their general election. And he will try and campaign in that election as you know the kind of one man trying to get Brexit done with all these kind of vast forces arrayed against him. I think that is that's the kind of electoral message he's doing. I mean, there is a kind of interesting bit of polling that's um, that's worth looking at. The kind of YouGov survey the other day found that 78% of Brexit party voters, so that, that's the kind of most hardcore Leave supporters, wouldn't blame Boris Johnson at all if Brexit doesn't happen on October 31st. And that I think in a way is the kind of strategic success he has had in recent weeks, which is he has successfully created the impression that this extension is something that will be forced on him against his will. And that obviously in an election gives him a better chance of being able to squeeze down that Brexit party vote and you kind of try and unite the Leave vote. James, thanks for joining us again. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. And it was Budget Day yesterday, and that's usually one of the big set-piece days of the political calendar, but not this year, with Brexit news overshadowing Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue's speech, and a general sense that there wasn't an awful lot in the speech anyway. But is this entirely fair and true? We're joined by economist and Irish Times columnist John Fitzgerald, and by UCC political scientist Theresa Reedy. 
Theresa, you were tweeting yesterday that uh, about budget secrecy, which is a thing of the past, obviously, because we really knew everything that was going to be in this rather underwhelming budget in advance of its delivery. By the here, minister. here. <laughs> well, a little bit more than technically, I mean, constitutionally, I believe the, the budget is actually meant to be secret and um, legally um, uh, it was in the past and we don't have to go all that far back into the past. Phil Hogan once had to resign for accidentally faxing some budget documents uh, to somebody who shouldn't have received them. And now we read most of the contents of the budgets um, in well pat, in, in advance. Pat stories for the most part, really I think, the detailed before. account. In fact, I was able to sketch out most of my analysis of the budget around half eight yesterday morning, long before the budget was ever announced. Now, as a general principle, most of our European neighbours actually discuss budgetary decisions very openly and a lot of this detail is discussed extensively in budgetary committees. Um, so we're a little bit unusual in having these these kind of budget secrecy requirements. So I suppose it's just a straightforward position. Either the budget is secret and then the budget is secret or we go for a more transparent process. Because where we've been trying to, dis- haven't we? You know, with the well, moving to the, you know, to the, 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 adva- you know, the, yeah. the advance process, which happens in the, over the course of the so summer. There's definitely a lot said, of information is made Yeah, available. there's definitely a lot to be said for, you know, what would be the impact on the budgetary figures um, if there was absolutely no change to any policy? So what would be the, the, the requirements of demographic change? So a no change scenario actually usually involves some additional. So what would be the costs involved in, in that? And then what would be the costs involved in various different taxation changes and whether or not there are or aren't going to be different uh, different taxation changes. Now, some things have to be kept secret because they have an effect on the on the markets and they can move uh, move sure. economic a- activity. But we could discuss a lot more than we actually do, uh, do discuss in the lead up and we certainly need to discuss a lot more after the budget. I think that's where we really have big things that we still need to do. I mean, the committees in the Dáil don't start discussing the budgetary estimates until after the start of the budget year, um, which kind kind of the, the horse has already mm. bolted to some extent. And John, is there an argument then from what Theresa is saying that do we need some constitutional change there? This this constitutional requirement just doesn't seem fit for a purpose. When we had the sort of the greatest showman budgets from Charlie McCreevy 20 years ago, they were seen in retrospect not to have been a good thing. No, I don't, the only reason for secrecy is if you move markets. For example, the stamp duty increase on commercial buildings. If people knew that that was coming last night, they would have signed the contract yesterday and escaped it. That's the only reason for the secrecy. When you live with coalition governments and coalitions which are supported by parties outside uh, the coalition, then you have an open discussion. And uh, so most of the issues, uh, 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 the reason why you knew the budget in advance was they've been discussed in advance. So that doesn't seem to me to be a problem. That's appropriate. One area which very little attention is paid to is I think the really big increase in the budget, which is significant, is in investment in terms of in housing, in public transport and so on. Nobody, it, it, it hardly receives a mention in the budget speech itself. And that actually is, from my point of view, interesting that this economy is growing out of its clothes. It needs, needs a new set of clothes and um, um, more public transport and so on um, if we're, and housing. Um, and that's, that, that really is the important and that change. Seems, that seems, Pat, uh, if that's true, like a very strange failure of political messaging, particularly from the final budget of a, of a government which is going into an election, because that's a, that would be a good news story, wouldn't it? Well, it is. But in fairness to the government, they have been talking about investment for two or three years now. And there was a national development plan last year. And I mean, I think there was some mention of it. Perhaps it wasn't 
the at the very top of their messaging plan yesterday to talk about that sort of stuff. And I mean, Theresa made reference to this as well that this is a very unusual ele- pre-election budget, but that's not necessarily. A bad thing, I'd submit, because traditionally our pre-election budgets have been to throw as much at people as they can uh, as they can possibly wish for, and even in relatively straightened times, uh, that's what governments have traditionally t- tried to do. I think the judgment made the political judgment, and obviously this is a mix of economic planning and social planning and political messaging. But I think the judgment that has been made by Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue in advance of this is that they need to rebuild Fine Gael's uh, reputation. I think always more cherished in Fine Gael than outside it. But as they perceive it, they need to rebuild Fine Gael's reputation for fiscal prudence, for competent economic management. And they judged that if they were to have a traditional pre-election budget in which they threw tax cuts and welfare increases uh, at people, that that would undermine their message. And one of the reasons uh, going into going into election, one of the reasons that they believe that is the Fine Gael experience at the last election, where the the uh, coalition, the Fine Gael Labour coalition was coming after five years of proper austerity, notwithstanding the fact that budgets had begun to be expansionary um, in the two budgets before the 2016 election. But they had as much of a giveaway budget as they could possibly afford in the uh, uh, at the end of 2015, or in October 2015. They went into an election campaign in 2016 with a sort of confused messaging saying, we did all the nasty things that we had to do and now we're going to turn on the taps and throw tax cuts and welfare increases at you and it didn't work for them. And I think that experience is informing the political strategy that underpins this. Project. And in terms, po- sorry, politically of, um, of of affecting that, is Pascal Donoghue in a way being aided, Theresa, by the fact that this is a Brexit budget? Because we know that there are always huge pressures on a Minister for Finance and the relative to a budget from the various departments, the various interest groups, many of whom have very strong, cogent arguments to be made for investment in their sectors. We, we, we know what they are. And this allowed him to kind of, you know, don't hit me with the Brexit baby in my arms kind of a defence. I, I think prudence played for both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in, in this budget. So, okay, there was no extra money for the the pensioners, but they were able to say uh, Fine Gael will be creating this narrative that we are the party of, you know, fiscal rectitude. We the party you can rely on when there is uncertain economic times. But I think Fianna Fáil are also, of course, spending a long time rebuilding their reputation as a party that can be trusted uh, to do the right thing at a critical moment for the uh, country. And a lot of the spokespersons spend a lot of time talking about, you know, look at Brexit Britain, look at the chaos. Fianna Fáil stands by a stable government. And I think for them as well, there's actually something to be be extracted from a a careful, very cautious uh, budget. For the independents, it's much more important that they had few uh, smarties, I think um, Box Moran called them. Mm. Uh, And there was undoubtedly things in there that the independent alliance were able to actually say here here's the bacon here's the pork I've brought it back for my my constituency so I think they had to deliver but I think for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael there's definitely a political dividend to be had from a cautious and prudent approach to the budget Sorry John you were going to come in there We don't always have election budgets the 1977 1997 and 2011 budgets were all all economically sensible budgets the government changed after each <laughs> of these budgets time, the um, This is lost. an economically sensible 
sensible budget. And I think, as you, you said, the, the, uh, the, the Brexit helped the government that um, absent Brexit, there would be pressure to pump more money into an economy which was booming and likely to continue to grow next year, which would be extremely unwise. Um, however, Brexit um, and the prospect that we may have a collapse in the economy next year means the government have actually been prudent, but they are pumping a small amount of money into the economy. That There's probably an injection about 0.4% of national income, which would be appropriate. Actually, you could actually even, if Brexit is as difficult as, as they anticipate, you could argue for an even bigger injection next year. So I think it is an economically wise budget. Um, what it is from a political point of view, I leave to you. Well, interesting, though, you should raise the, the example of 2007. Uh, and the budget for 2007 was quite expansionary, delivered at the end of uh, 2006. But in that 2007 election, there was, as you will have at the next election, a government that had been led by a party that was in uh, had been in office for two terms, trying to win a third term. And that 2007 election campaign was not a uh, uh, it wasn't a contest it seems to me between you know a prudent government and a reckless opposition it was uh, the op- the opposition tried to outpromise Fianna Fáil there was a famous speech that Bertie Ahern delivered at the Fianna Fáil or Desh in April of 2007 where he effectively tore up a script that had been agreed days before and instead went out and sought to outpromise again the uh, the opposition but what that election turned on it seems uh, it seems to me was the track record of the government and the credibility of its promises because voters have an inbuilt scepticism about political promises and they're more likely to believe political promises where they see there is a track record of delivery and I think that's what the next the debate in the next election will be about on election night my father Gareth Fitzgerald and Richard Bruton were on television. And my father said to Richard Bruton, why did you not call out the dangers of this budget? That it's economically most unwise. You're setting up serious problems for the economy. And Richard Bruton, as far as I can remember, his answer was they had done focus groups and there was no way they could convince people that the this was an unwise budget, so they went along with the stimulatory story. And my father actually wrote an article in June 2007 about the dangers, and we saw um, the dangers were there and we had a disaster as a result. But it was enough? interesting that, that Richard Bruton acknowledged, as far as I can remember, there were dangers, but felt he couldn't sell it to the people of Ireland. And is there not an element in that, uh, it strikes me, of what often happens, which is fighting the last war? And 2007, Fine Gael were deeply scarred by what had happened with their prudent stewardship being uh, being not rewarded by the electorate in 1997. And they took that lesson to mean that you had to buy the election. Yes, but it turns out actually the voters aren't entirely persuaded by Fine Gael promises of, you know, um, green fields ahead. Which is uh, the example of the last, uh, of the last, uh, election, of the last election. Which is and why, in, in fairness, yeah. it would be unusual if voters' perception of how politicians manage the economy and how they promise to manage the economy in the future, it would be very unusual if that hadn't been affected by the economic cataclysm that followed that 2007 election. If you look at the consumer sentiment, it's, it's falling in yes. Ireland. People are worried about Brexit. Yes. And to go out and tell everybody that things were great, it wasn't going to sell. So it may be that as well as if John counts this as an economically prudent budget, I think the political strategy behind it 
is probably the correct one for Fine Gael. Does that mean Fine Gael rides to a general election victory on the back of this? Absolutely not. But it does mean, I think, that this budget is the best political step that they could take. So I suppose point. in a way, Brexit is a calamity, but it could be fortuitous politically and economically at this particular budgetary juncture. Politically, the parties have reason why they want to see themselves as prudent and economically, depending on what happens, our economy is going very well. It does not need a significant cash injection at this point. I wouldn't get too this, carried this away that it would be heartening to think that there is a political market for economic prudence, but I'm not 100% convinced of that, Judge. <laughs> it, it, it was interesting, the, my, my Michael McGrath's speech for Fianna Fáil was actually more interesting. The budget speech was the budget speech, but his speech on why it was right to be prudent given Brexit was actually more interesting. I want to ask you about climate change, John, because obviously you're the chair of the the advisory panel to the the government on that. Uh, There was a lot of focus on the carbon tax uh, from both sides of the argument. Some people saying it was a lot less than it should have been to get to where we need to get to. Some people saying it's completely outrageous imposition, particularly on people who live in rural areas. What do you make of the approach to that? Um, I, uh, we recommended that they increase it by um, 15 euros, uh, which is substantially more than the 6 euros they increased it by. You need to get to at least 80 by 2030. Um, I would have accepted um, and been happy enough with what they've done, 6 euros a tonne, if they'd enshrined in legislation that it would increase every year by 6 euros a tonne. So you don't have this, like the headline is carbon tax going up by 6 euros a tonne in this budget so that that wouldn't be there in future budgets because actually the impact on people in any one year is very small. It's two cents onto a litre of petrol. Like that, from one end of a village to another, the price can differ by two cents. That if you, so the other... Also, some lad blows up an oil well in Saudi Arabia. No, I mean, goes up by a lot more. Science Editor makes that very point in in, in today's newspaper, that it's totally within the margins of just the regular fluctuations that happen. But if they didn't shrine it in legislation, I think it probably will. I think Fianna Fáil, uh, Social Democrats, Labour Party, Greens are all for it. It will continue to rise. So it, what you need to tell people is a message that you may not want to change your car now, but when you change a car, you need to look at a hybrid or an electric car, um, increasingly electric cars in the coming decade, um, so you can save money and save the planet. So it sends a signal to people in investing. You may have, um, uh, it will add a bit onto your home heating oil. However, it sends a signal to you, you need to look at insulating your house so you actually save money in the future. So I think it's a very important signal and it's the signalling effect which would have been better if they'd committed to six euros every year rather than just for this year. But I welcome it. But as you know well, the criticism of that from from some political quarters is that it's going to adversely affect certain elements of society and it's not just people who are on social welfare it's people on lower incomes in rural areas who have to commute long distance or reliance on cars who may not be able to buy a new car because they're driving some old 15 year old banger that they can't afford to replace Well uh, uh, commuters driving long distances need reliable cars and actually the study done in 2009 by the ESRI shows that people in rural areas who will be most affected are the commuters not people actually living and working in rural areas Commuters already, if they switch from a normal car to a hybrid or certainly to an electric car, they will actually save money. So it's saying the next time you change your car and if you're commuting long distances, you've got to change your car reasonably regularly. So it's saying if you're a commuter commuting long distances, you need to look at the next time you trade up um, uh, should you go for a hybrid if you're driving a petrol or diesel car or should you go for an electric car so it's sending that signal to people um, and if we don't send signals to people it's 
rather like when I was in school, teacher leaves the class and says, be good. And for five minutes, you're good. And after 30 minutes, there's a riot that you actually need to signal to people and keep it up front. You need to change. And is there then on the other side, because the other part of the critique is um, that on the other side of the ledger, there needs to be specific investment in better public transport, better insulation, a range of other measures. Well, actually, and I felt they could have presented it better. The 70, the 90 million, which will be brought in next year, they've identified where it's going to go. 21 million is going on the fuel allowance, which is people on lowest incomes who are going to be affected. Another 13 million is going on insulation for people on low incomes in houses. Um, another 20 million is going on support for those losing their jobs in peat-fired electricity. Um, there's, like, they've identified where the 90 million is going and it is doing, a, 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 sort of, the bulk of it is going to people who will be on low incomes or in d- disadvantaged circumstances who would be adversely affected. So it is, be, the revenue is being used for what it ought to be used for. I didn't get that message though when I no I I felt there should have been a table because it's in there I had to I I took a. 40 minutes going through all the documents to identify 71 of the 90 million. Now, it shouldn't be that difficult. I think from their own point of view, they should have said, here's a table, here's the 90, and here's what we're spending on, saying, actually, we're doing a good job. A couple of things there, Theresa. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Especially for the pensioners, I mean, they did actually get an increase in the fuel allowance, but actually a large part of the impact of the carbon tax is not going to come into effect until after the winter period is is over. So home heating oil is not going up until May. but they're going to get the carbon or the additional um, uh, two euros all through the the winter uh, season. So they they did do things to kind of politically proof some of the the changes, albeit though that it perhaps wasn't communicated terribly well. There was a decided dearth of tables in the back of the budget this Much year. Much to John's disappointment, uh, generally, uh, generally. Well, I think there were plenty for John, but there were uh, very, ones, very few examples of, um, you know, Mary and Seamus, a guard yeah. married to a teacher, and the tax changes we have made today will make Mary and Seamus X amount better off. There was a decided because lack of those tables. Because there few tax changes. And indeed, because a point that wasn't really made is that actually nearly everybody is worse off as a consequence of this budget because there was no indexing of any of the tax bans and no uh, changes to most of the social welfare rates. So inflation will erode a certain, uh, this is a small amount, but, but people will be worse off at the end of the year but by a very marginal uh, amount but of course you probably wouldn't want to be drawing up tables and putting those into And it's the a very long way away from point. Leo Varadkar's vision of tax cuts for the people who get up early in the morning, isn't it Pat? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, in terms of like the politics of this, and I'd be fascinated to learn more about the internal politics within government on this question, but the government, or Minister for Finance, has abandoned the biggest election platform announced by the Taoiseach uh, not 12 months ago when he said at the Fine Gael Ordesh, you know, that they would, the Fine Gael governments would make progress towards uh, increasing the threshold for the higher rate of income tax to 50,000 and they would do that over a series of years and they, they would do it they had done it uh, they'd made some steps in the previous two budgets and they would continue to do it now that is gone that is a sacrifice to the need for and I think on one side of the ledger within government there was the tax cuts and the other side of the ledger was the uh, was the welfare increases so they neither, neither were done and uh, I think they were sacrificed on the altar of prudence uh, and the need to communicate this idea of uh, of prudence as well as to the substance of the argument for L- lest we get totally carried away with this prudence thing it seems to me there's lots of little nuggets in there in the budget when you 
go under the hood a little bit, which definitely play to certain constituencies of the Fine Gael support. So bookies, you know, small bookies, for example, get a tax relief. That was actually the single rather oddest Which uh, is there supposedly because they're under pressure from, you know, online large operators. I don't remember a similar tax relief being given to travel agents or all the other people who've been affected by similar market market forces. The bookies were more a Fianna Fáil constituency. The difference between the two parties, that one was full of bookies and the other was full of bishops. It does beg the question (laughs) why bookies. I mean, another sector that benefits slightly is that inheritance tax, the... um, the, the level at which you start paying inheritance tax has been raised. That clearly benefits the more prosperous parts of society. And also the help to buy scheme, which there was talk in advance of the budget of the upper limit of that being raised because the perception is that too much of it is going towards people who can afford to buy their houses anyway. And that wasn't adjusted. So those are all like little, you know, genuflections towards the kind of core Fine Gael voting constituency, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they, they didn't do anything to really upset too many people. I saw there was a bit of resistance to the um, the carbon tax, but I think it'll be quite hard to actually inflame that very significantly because the, the change is going to be so modest. And then there were, yeah, little bits and pieces. There was a green tinge, I thought, to a lot of the um, uh, the sweeteners that were included in there. So there was um, money for greenways, money for, for cycling infrastructure. And I thought it said something about what a strange budget it was that the minister was actually speaking about, you know, and I'm giving two million to this type of infrastructure and nine million to it's a long way for um, you know one one point yeah. one billion for yeah, you know, yeah. changes in social in social welfare. So there there were certainly um, a number of very small discrete measures, and I felt cumulatively a lot of them were actually um, they 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 had certain green ideology tinged them, which I think is a reflection of uh, a, what's coming down the road in in the general election where. where green issues will be certainly up there. I think we don't want to overstate it too much but it'll get into the top five which it certainly wouldn't have done uh, in the in the past. There was evidence of it before the European Parliament elections and when we were looking at the uh, Eurobarometer data we were saying really will, will green issues come through that much but actually ultimately they, they did make a, a very significant step forward and I think we'd expect the same and I think it it was certainly in there in the um, uh, in the budget. I mean, it went nowhere near far enough, but it says something that these issues are starting to to, to creep in when you have a you know a centre right party. Their their issues are mainstreaming a but bit. That, uh, you have these tiny things, but we need to make a major change on on climate. And one of the problems is that we need the political system to go out and tell people we are going to make you worse off to save the climate. And it's going to be, it's not going to do much for you, but it's going to save your great grandchildren. In, no, in an election year, that's a very difficult it, it's message. Diffi- you know, it, and that is the problem about actually making real change. Um, so an election budget is not the time when you go out and tell people, we're going to make you worse off and we're promising to do so. We'll leave it on that thought there. Thanks very much to John Fitzgerald, Theresa Reedy and Pat. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Pat, Teresa and John and to James Forsyth for joining us earlier. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Acast or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.